Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Good physics day, everyone. And if you are a follower of Physics Alive, thank you so much for sticking with me through this transition period for me because it's been almost three months since I've last published an episode. So I am currently sitting in my new office at Plymouth State University. And this new office, this is my recording studio as it was before when I was at Hamilton College. This new office is about three times as big as my last office and there's no carpet. So there's a chance that this is just a big echo chamber. I've tried to put enough pictures and whatnot on the walls, but who knows how this will sound. So I'm, I'm very curious. Thank you for your patience as I've completed my move to New Hampshire this summer. It's definitely been a very busy time packing everything up in New York, doing the move, unpacking a new place, excitedly hiking mountain trails in my new location, and... Uh, I didn't realize it, but I, I felt like I actually needed a little bit of a break from having to do any editing, trying to schedule new interviews, doing any curriculum planning. I, I pretty much just put everything on pause so that I could be there with my family this summer and, and enjoy this summer and really move into my, my new place and get ready for the next stage of my career. I hope you weren't too afraid that I would be walking away from the show. I definitely want to continue it, but truth be told, I don't know what form and how often that might look like. Uh, my schedule is very different now. Uh, I must say that in my previous position, I had some more flexibility in, in my time. My teaching schedule was definitely a bit lighter than is going to be now. Uh, and in fact, I am already planning in my mind, we'll see if it happens an episode uh, about my transition to Plymouth State, about my new role and how I'm settling into it and how I'm thinking about planning courses. A uh, previous guest and previous co-host on the show, Brian Lane, actually suggested to me that it could be interesting if I chronicled my move to a new position and what it looks like for me as I'm creating courses at a new place trying to practice some of these education research ideas uh, that, that I'm trying to apply. And that's a really interesting idea. So we'll see if something comes together for, for that or, or not. I'm definitely in the throes of new beginnings right now. Uh, it is currently a Thursday afternoon as I record this introduction. I just completed my first day of new faculty orientation. Tomorrow is my second day of new faculty orientation, and then next week begins the week long of meetings, the university days, as they call it here. And I'm really excited about many of the, the sessions and also realizing I have a lot of syllabi to, to put together. Well, actually, I've put them together at this point, and, uh, but, but planning those first few days of, of classes. But throughout all that, I'm also now trying to get this episode out because this is an interview that I conducted last May. And... I think it, it's time for, for this one to finally be released. I finally finished the editing a few days ago. So here we go. Episode 44, The Investigative Science Learning Environment with Eugenia Etkina. This interview with Eugenia provides the educational philosophy behind IELTS, specific examples of how the approach works, and the support network that can get you started. This was really an amazing conversation with Eugenia, 
and I learned so much. I had some ideas of what IL looked like before this conversation started, and I have to say, I don't think most of them were correct. So there was so much for, for me to learn, and uh, I'm very open to the potential of using uh, this method in the future. In fact, I was considering it for, for this academic year, moving into a new institution, but with so much change that was happening this summer, I, I decided, you know what? No, no big shifts right now. Uh, I've got enough on my plate. So this, this could be something I could consider for next year. But anyway, let's hear from Eugenia and, and learn all about what Isle is. Today, I'm speaking with Eugenia Etkina, Distinguished Professor of Science Education at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. She holds a PhD in physics education from Moscow State Pedagogical University and has more than 35 years of experience teaching. She has many accolades to her name, including the recipient of the 2014 Millikan Medal, awarded to educators who have made significant contributions to teaching physics, and she is a fellow of the American Association of Physics Teachers. She is also a recipient of the 2010 American Association for the Advancement of Science Award for the Best Science Teaching Technology Resource. Most educators will probably find Eugenia's name synonymous with IELTS, the investigative science learning environment. This is an approach to learning and teaching physics that engages students in learning physics by practicing it. I can keep reading statements from the literature, but let's hear it from Eugenia instead. Eugenia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you, Brad, for inviting me. Thank you very much. Yeah. Are, now, are you retired at this point? I feel like I, I yep. read that somewhere. This is recent? <laughs> Six months, yes. As uh -huh. of January 1st, I am an Emerita Distinguished Professor. Ah, uh-huh. title awarded to me by the president of Rutgers University. Wonderful. Okay. So now you can just sort of lounge around and do things at your own whim, if it works that way. <laughs> right. That's exactly what I do. Right. <laughs> So now that you're actually at the at the end of your career, although I'm sure you'll still be very active with with education, the education community, I'd like to start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in shaping your path? Well, Brad, if I if I am to be honest, this would just be the topic of our podcast because there have been so many people who contributed <laughs> to who I am over the years. That would be too many, but I'll mention a few. So the first person is my mom. Her name is Ina Vishnyatska, and it's a Polish-Jewish last name. Mm -hmm. And in my family, all women kept their maiden name names. Uh, so my mom was not just a strong woman. She was a math teacher, and she taught me a very important skill without which I would not be able to be a teacher or an academic is how to break big tasks into smaller tasks. Hmm. Big tasks overwhelm us, and small tasks are doable. So she taught this to me when I was 14 years old, and I'm carrying this skill through my whole life. My dad, his name was Valentine Etkin. He doesn't have an A at the end because A means I am a female in Russian language, so... He is Valentine Atkin, and I'm Eugenia Atkina. So he was a physicist and a physics professor, and he taught me not to fear physics. Uh, back in the Soviet Union, everybody took physics. It was 100% mandatory. And at the beginning, I was very scared. He not only taught me not to fear, 
but he also taught me to love it and to see the nature of it. The, he was an experimentalist. And so to feel the experimental nature of things and watch him work and see his graduate students coming to our apartment during the weekends and at night and working with him. So it's not just the physics, it's the work ethic of a professor. That's what I learned from my father. My high school principal, I worked 14, um, 13 years as, uh, as a high school teacher, Yuri Zavelsky was an amazing person who he inspired me to become a better teacher. He would challenge me every week of my life for 13 years. And he would come and say, Eugenia, what about this? And what about that? And I would think, yeah, what about this? I don't have any time for it. And then he would say, I'll come and see how you do that in two weeks. And I had to learn to do it. So and you found the time. <laughs> yes, I found the time and, um, and passion. And he continued mm. to be passionate about his teaching all his life. And he instilled this passion for uh, innovation in me. And then uh, the most important person for the Isle approach is, of course, Alan Van Heulen. He mm. was the first person who actually believed in what I was saying and said, I will try it. The first paper about the L approach that I sent to the American Journal of Physics was rejected without reviews because the editor said, Eugenia, it's a great paper. I agree with every word. And the problem is that everybody knows it and everybody does it. So there's nothing new in this paper because this is about physics. That's what physics is. And we all do it. And so I was sad. I was a beginning um, assistant professor at Rutgers University. And uh, I asked Alan Van Heulen, a famous guy already at that time, to read the paper and tell me if he knows it and if he does it. And he said, wow, I don't know it. I don't do it, but I have been looking for something like this for years because I want to prepare my students for the future. And this is approach uh, to learning physics of the future. And we uh, went on to, for him to try the approach with his um, students at that time. We didn't have any materials written in English. Uh, I only mm -hmm. had my Russian materials. Mm -hmm. And so I would coach him on the phone every day before his large room meeting. It wasn't a lecture. It was very interactive. He was interactive already. He was like the main person of interactivity in large uh, courses at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he followed uh, my advice and instructions and changed what he was doing. And we got amazing results after the first quarter that he tried it. And he said, I'm sold. Let's write a grant. Let's write a textbook. Let's work together. And so that's what we did. Before him, I tried to explain to several professors at Rutgers what the approach is about. And they just dismissed me. And so I think that the existence of Isle in this country uh, is owed to the wisdom of Alan Van Heulen. Mm -hmm. It it's almost seems it seems very odd to me that that the that paper was originally rejected. It's like, oh, everybody knows that, everybody's doing it. You know, maybe everybody sort of knew it in the back of their head, but I, I feel like people were not doing it in the classroom. Uh, in fact, you know, that whole story happened twenty five years ago in 1997. 
And since then, I've been working with, you know, many, many professors and high school physics teachers and everyone until today coming to an aisle workshop says, wow, I've never thought of physics this way. Mm -hmm. Now, Alan was, I mean, he was instrumental, unless I'm confusing names, with modeling instruction, right? No, or, no. that was David Hestinus. Oh, oh, Hestinus. Okay, okay. I got that. It was an H last name, but I, I, can, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be confusing those individuals. Yes. No, it's okay. It's okay. It was David Hestinus. So Alan had his own curriculum, active physics and case study physics. He was a pioneer of using multiple representations together with David Hestinus mm, yeah. in their curriculum materials. Okay. But they were very different in their approaches. I would say that Alan was probably uh, more conservative epistemologically. Hmm. He would he had a part of his activities that's called exposition when he would tell the students stuff. Mm, okay. And uh, in the modeling instruction, there is no official time for this exposition. Mm -hmm. And we had to change a lot in what he did in order to, uh, you know, fuse his approach, which was rich with multiple representations, and my approach, which was rich with the epistemological development mm -hmm. of how do we know what we know? Where does knowledge come from? But over the years, it became much richer than what I had originally or he had originally or what we had together because another component was added to it, a big one uh, that we always had. We just didn't realize that we had it. And I'll talk about it later when you ask me other questions. Mm -hmm. I know you'll ask about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in sharing with, with my audience and learning more a bit myself uh, about what this looks like on the the day to day. So, uh, according to the Fizport webpage, where I was able to dig up some some great resources about IELTS, IELTS focuses on engaging students in scientific practices and building productive intuitions rather than developing conceptual understanding and confronting difficulties. And it also notes that IELTS is very different from traditional or even other reformed physics instruction. So it may take some time for the instructor and the students to get used to. And this is a, a very intriguing statement for me since um, I've been very interested in lots of different types of physics education reform. And I've had episodes about modeling instruction along with doing it myself. I've, I've talked um, uh, with an individual about Pogel, about teaching labs and service to lab skills and the broad benefits of research-backed classroom approaches very broadly with, with Carl Wyman. So to get started and to give listeners a feel for Isle in action, let's dive into an activity that is on the ground and running. I step into your classroom for a week or two before you retired, and I want to experience this investigative science environment. A recent paper you co-authored described an example from the wave super, superposition unit. Uh, so that could be a good one to start with, unless you have another one in mind that you'd like to talk about. Uh, let me give you another example, because people can read this paper mm -hmm. and learn about the superposition. Another example that we often use in our workshops, and um, I wouldn't say I stepped away from teaching <laughs> because I, <laughs> I probably teach on average you know, from four to six hours a week uh, doing professional development. Uh, okay. Now yeah. Yeah. Different people. Yes. Um, all on a voluntary basis, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, so here's an example. So imagine your students are starting geometrical optics, right? And before today's lesson, this is what they did. It's important to know what they did before, mm -hmm. right? First, we went to a very special super dark room. We sat there 
the whole class, and we spend a lot of time making it absolutely dark with their help. We sat there for about five minutes, and I asked them, what do you see? And they said, nothing. And I said, well, maybe if we sit here a little longer, you will see something. And we said a little more, and I was like, oh, my God, the time is running. <laughs> we better get back to class. And um, so they said nothing, because if you really have an absolutely dark room, you will see nothing. Mm -hmm. So why is this important? Because you need to realize in order to see something, you need a source of light. Your eyes are not enough. So I could have mm -hmm. asked them before we went to this dark room, would you see something if you are in a very dark room? And they would say, yes, if we sit there long enough, we'll be able to mm -hmm. see. And that would be what we call a misconception. Mm -hmm. But in aisle, we don't believe in misconceptions. They would be absolutely right. It would not be a wrong idea because in their experience, they've never been in an absolutely dark mm -hmm. room. It's true, yeah. Right? But we, uh, we do not want to expose or elicit a misconception. We don't even use this word. It's actually a cuss word in, in aisle. <laughs> Uh, because, and, and that's another, another topic for a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Why it is this way, but we don't do it. We'll let them be successful. Now they come out of this dark room and they all believe and they all experience. They don't believe they experience that they saw nothing. Great. So I said, what does it mean? Uh, what do we need to see? They say, well, the eyes are not enough. We need a source of light, right? So we start with a very, very simple source of light. We take a laser pointer, shine it at a wall. And they, and they ask them, do you, what do you see? And they say, we see a spot on the wall. I say, do you see light from the laser going to the wall? They say, no. So what can we do to see light? I say, well, we can see the wall because light probably bounces back from it. So we need something for the light to bounce back. So what can we do? And they say, put a piece of paper. or you know, spray some water from a water bottle that, you know, to fl uh, for flowers that I conveniently have on my desk. Mm -hmm. They see this water bottle, they spray some water. We sprayed water and they see this beautiful trace of light. <gasps> light travels in a straight line and you only see it when it bounces off something. So we come up with an idea of a ray of light as a model. And I say, you know, hmm. laser pointer is a very special source of light that give us a gives us a very narrow beam like uh, that we can think of a ray but other sources are not that special so let's look at another source and here's the beginning of our lesson today they're in the room and we have uh, an incandescent light bulb many years ago or an led bulb but this bulb is not transparent you only see it's opaque right? You don't see the spiral or anything, especially in LED bulbs, right? Uh, it's just a bulb. So in a dark room, mm -hmm. I turn on the bulb and they're all sitting around their tables with whiteboards. And I say, let's turn on the light. We turn on the light and they see the ceiling is lit and the uh, walls are lit. So light reaches every point. I said, okay, now on your whiteboards, draw this bulb and use the ray model to explain how light managed to reach all the points. What do you think they draw? They all draw a bulb, and then they saw rays 
coming one ray from each point on the surface of the bulb. Like the sun. Mm. Like the students draw mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the sun, right? Each point sends one ray. Yep. And it explains how the whole room is lit. I said, great, that's your first model. How can we test it? That each point sends one ray. You all drew this in case that one group draws many rays from each point. I'll say, okay, these are two competing models. But usually it's just one because everybody knows how things send light. So how can you test yep, yep. whether each, each point sends just one ray? And they say, oh, that's very easy. They go, uh, they don't say that's very easy first. They go into their groups and they work together and they come up with different ways to test this idea. One is, which is easy and most common, is to take aluminum foil, cover the bulb, and make a little teeny hole. So if one ray goes out from this hole, then on the ceiling you will see a spot, maybe a little wider, but it will be a spot. And uh, some other groups come up with an idea to take a bulb and place an object between the bulb and, um, and the wall. And if each point uh, sends only one ray, then the shadow of the object on the wall should be of different sizes. It should get bigger and bigger, but it should be dark all the way. So the darkness should not change. So these are two what we call testing experiments for their hypothesis. Uh, of course, I have the uh, aluminum foil prepared because I know they will come up with this idea. Uh, <laughs> they cover their bulbs and what they see is that from teeny point, the whole ceiling or the whole wall is lit. Mm -hmm. So, whoa. And the color of the shadow on the wall changes. It goes from almost invisible when the object is close to the bulb like very faint, to very, very dark when the object is close to the wall. So the model of one ray from each point is rejected, and they create a new model of multiple rays, and they go again to test it. And the ultimate testing experiment is not to make a hole in the cover, but to make a screen with a hole. And then if each point sends multiple rays, then on the... Uh, wall, there should be an image of the bulb upside down. So you need an asymmetrical bulb. And we take a candle and um, they test uh, this new model and uh, they create a pinhole camera in a way. And then they build a real pinhole mm -hmm. camera and they learn to uh, watch things uh, with it. And, and it's exciting. That's, that's a home project. So what did they learn in this lesson? they learned that each point of an extended light source sends multiple rays. And this is the key idea for drawing any ray diagram, for mirrors, lenses, for anything, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't understand yeah. that each point sends yep. multiple rays, then you cannot draw ray diagrams. And you don't realize that the three rays that we use to draw an image are just... Uh, chosen rays, but there are many, many more. If you understand that each point sends a, an infinite number of rays, then the problem with the size of the mirror stops being a problem. If you cut a mirror in half, would you see half the image? Of course not, because each point sends an infinite number of rays. 
how is this different from any uh, traditional approach or from any reformed approach, most reformed approaches? Can you tell me? I mean, the... I'm I'm just thinking of so I'm just thinking of this particular example as, I mean th- that's almost like a th- a throwaway point like oh yeah this this is something that you just have to assume is true, and and then that that gets you into thinking about how you can do some of the ray tracing diagrams, and I mean this totally just gives me the appreciation for the fact that it's like this is not an obvious fact for students that if given the the chance to develop their own models. They they come up with this sunburst model as the first one, and and that actually makes perfect sense to me because they've never they never would have thought about this at this deeper level, and that yeah now they're trying to come up with experiments to to prove or disprove whether their their That's model cool. makes sense, and that's I even when I compare it with modeling instruction, and and I I have to say that years ago when I was first getting into modeling, and then I sort of learned about Isle, I. I thought, well, I'm already doing modeling, so I'm not going to learn much about Isle. And I think Isle is just kind of modeling-like anyway. And upon that description, it's like, no, it's it's nothing the, the, the same. Yeah, there's a paradigm experiment, but you're not trying to develop, say, a very specific mathematical model. You're not trying to develop all the multiple representations from that one experiment. You're, you're trying to help. It seems like you're helping to get students just think about sort of in, in this case, and some of the others I've seen, everyday physics that's around them is like, what's what's really going on in this? Let's let's kind of build build up a model, testing these pieces, and I mean, I I feel like for me it's almost hard to describe. Well, how exactly is it different? But it feels so different, even from what the even from the conception I may have had coming into this conversation about what I thought it was. It's like already I'm feeling like I'm starting to see a switch of. It's like, oh, I kind of see what this is about, where this is going, how we're how we're helping to develop students' ideas about the world around them and have they build their own models and test them right. and build new ones. Right. Yep. And that's exactly the point that uh, students have ideas that are developed, you know, from their everyday experience and the language that we use. And these ideas are never wrong because if they were wrong, the students would not be alive, Right. These ideas help <laughs> yep. them survive in this world. But we, when we think about physics, we put these ideas in a very specific circumstance that the students are not familiar. Mm-hmm. And when they try to apply their intuition to this circumstance, of course, they fail because they've never been in a dark room. They've never been uh, in an environment with no air. We ask them, has two objects heavy and light, which one will for- mm-hmm. first, of course, heavy? right? We all know it. We rode bikes downhill with our lighter friends or heavier friends. We know who comes to the bottom first. Uh, But Mm -hmm. the physicist thinks about an airless environment, similar shapes of objects, right? And so by setting these situations for the students that are yet they're unfamiliar and asking them to make predictions about the outcome of the experiments in the context that they have never been before sets them up for failure. And that's how we figure out students' misconceptions. So instead, we don't do that at all. We have this very first experiment that starts the development of a new concept, which is very simple, 
which is close to what students have done, but with a little modification, physics-ish modification, to help them focus on the main idea from which they can develop their wild idea. We used to call them crazy ideas because you can develop many ideas, right? Uh, but mm -hmm. now the word crazy is not so good, so we use wild. So they come up with wild ideas, mm -hmm. and we teach them that the next step is not to look for authority where the idea is right or wrong, but to think about how you can rule it out. What experiment can you perform to rule it out? So it's not supporting argument with evidence. You can find supporting evidence for mm -hmm. any argument, right? Including intelligent design. There's lots of supporting evidence. But you mm -hmm. cannot mm -hmm. find a disproving <laughs> evidence. So we teach the students to look for disproving evidence. So once they come up with a 1.1 ray model, that's okay, how can you rule it out? And that's what mm -hmm. the... Artist. So ruling out is a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. And then we design another model. They design another model and we try to rule it out. And then we say we didn't prove it. We failed to rule it out. And until we manage to rule it out, we keep it. But physicists, um, and not only physicists, you look at doctors, right? Differential diagnosis. You have a patient with a set of symptoms, and then doctors throw out these wild ideas, what it can be. And then you have to rule out with more evidence. So that's exactly what we do. So if you ever watched, uh, you know, House, uh, it's an old show about doctors, uh, oh. right? Mm -hmm. Or any detective uh, shows, any mysteries, that's what they do. They have multiple hypotheses and they rule them out. And that's what physicists do historically. Uh, only it's very rarely one person who has multiple hypotheses or wild ideas. It's usually different people. So this is one thing. But I didn't mention two, two other important things that you would not see in that particular lesson. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that we have a textbook where the, all these experiments are described and analyzed. But the students do not read the textbook before they come to class. We strongly encourage them not to read the textbook. They only read it after. First comes the physical experience, their own thinking, their own uh, discussions and struggles, and then reading the book, as opposed to the methods when the students read the book at home, then come to class to discuss it, and apply what they learned. Because if you read the textbook first, then knowledge comes from authority. But for our students, mm, knowledge yeah. comes from experiment and their reasoning. So these are the sources. Experiment doesn't give you knowledge, but it gives you an opportunity to reason. It's the combination of the experiment and reasoning that creates knowledge. Then you can go and see what experts said about it but not before. So that's one important difference between everything that we do and the rest of the world. We do not do flipped classrooms. Uh, the second thing is that uh, when students work in classes, you can see their models, their ideas are continuously improved. And the model that is rejected is a good model as long as it is experimentally testable. 
It doesn't need to be the right model. Mm-hmm. Actually, mm-hmm. they clap yeah. when the model is rejected because it's it's a great feeling. Yes, we created the model. It explains the observational experiment, but we managed to reject it. Uh, and so this focus on improvement is very important. That's why in the IELTS classrooms, all work can be improved. So you do the um, lab report. You submit it. And when you write it, you have a set of rubrics for your own self-assessment as a student. And you think you did great on all the rubrics. You put yourself, you know, uh, adequate, adequate on everything. Then the teacher looks at it at home or on the screen right there, if you do it on Google Docs, and says, well, this score is not adequate. It needs improvement. You can take this report. You can revise this point. You can get the high score, and you will not be affected by your previous low score. It's true for quizzes. Mm-hmm. It's true for exams in some courses, but it's tr- it's true for homework. It is the whole idea that you are not uh, bound to your very first try. Why? Hmm. Because we not only want the students to learn physics as physicists, we want them to experience what being a physicist is. And being a physicist means improving and revising stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. So you submit Mm -hmm. a grant, it usually gets rejected with comments. So you improve, you resubmit it. The same with papers, uh, the same with everything, right? How many times did you have to submit your dissertation to your advisor for him to or for her to finally approve it? I only in my whole life, I only had one paper that was accepted without any revisions. And I've published over 100. One paper was published without mm-hmm. not a word changed. It's my paper in the physics teacher, physics mm-hmm. on rollerblades. Mm-hmm. Every Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of the papers, uh, it's either minor revision or major revision or reject and resubmit or reject and don't ever think of submitting as a, another paper. <laughs> yeah, I've had those too. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> uh, and so understanding that your first try is not necessarily the end, that you you can and you should improve. And that's what life is about. Life is not about winning on the mm-hmm. first try. It's about trying and improving. So that's how we grow a uh, growth mindset. So this focus on, on developing the growth mindset is one of the fundamentals of the aisle approach. Yeah, it almost, when I, when I was first sort of reading about some of the, the underpinning philosophies, that, that, that one almost sounded like it was separate from like it could be sep- separated out from the the methodology of of the course and that it was a, a great thing to bring in, but that it wasn't necessarily the same idea. But as you're explaining it, and I'm realizing, no, they're completely tied together, um, that, you know, that that's what they're doing in, in creating these models and trying to trying to disprove them. There's there's a revision that's happening there. So if there's a revision in that work, why why not having the chance for revision in the work that you submit as well? So it all seems... Uh, very nicely tied together. Right. I'm glad you see it. So it it kind of seems like, and, and one of the questions I um, I was going to ask, I I think I'll I'm beginning to to see an answer for already that um, 
this seems like this is not a IL is not a framework that you can just you know pick out an experiment and say oh I'll I'll do that an experiment like it's um, like an interactive learning demonstration and then I'll do a bunch of other things as well it, it seems like this this is a full curriculum that really builds and amplifies on itself and that and we haven't even started we haven't even talked about what the homework questions might might look like but i suspect they must be very interrelated with the the scenarios that you're considering in class right. that is absolutely right so the students have uh what we call an active learning guide it's like a set of activities and then um in class they usually uh do this explorations and um you know, development and testing of ideas and development of new representations. And then at home, they go and practice the representations and then they come to class and they do more of an application, solving more complicated experimental and, um, you know, paper and pencil problems. Though now we advocate that every problem needs to have an experiment where students can actually test the answer to see experimentally. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a new thing, mm -hmm. and then they go home and continue building on what they did. So it's all the whole approach is very unified. And yes, uh, this is one of the things that I've been um, not fighting, but and not against. It sounds sounds bad, but this is not my thing. When people say, you know, do you have a lab for momentum? I say no, I don't have a lab for momentum. I have a unit on momentum. If you want to do a whole unit, hmm. it's a sequence of activities, but there's no lab for momentum. So you're absolutely right. You can take our experiments and our activities and do them individually. And they probably, some of them will be great, but it would not mm -hmm. be learning through the aisle approach. It will be just doing mm -hmm. activities. Right. So thinking of this from, from the, the teacher perspective, I feel like you know, you could hand me the resources and I could get the right, the right textbook, but I feel like I would be uh, very much a fish out of water without having ever taken physics like this myself. And so I, I guess what, what becomes the recommended way to get involved with, with it? So, so say somebody's listening or, you know, I'm asking questions and thinking about this. It's like, let's say I wanted to do aisle, you know, this year or in a future year, what does it look like to prepare for that? What what kind of, is there a, a training that is involved? Uh, I know with like modeling instruction, you could do two week, three week, I think even up to five week trainings at this point. So I'm kind of curious what, what the preparation before uh, jumping into an IL class might look like. Well, we don't have uh, this network as the modeling instruction, the modeling association has, unfortunately. But we do have workshops and uh, we have a Facebook group that has over 1,200 members all over the world, literally on every mm -hmm. continent, New Zealand, Australia, Africa, uh, Asia, Europe, um, both Americas. So I think the first, the first thing that I would recommend is to take an IELTS workshop. And it's usually a two-day uh, workshop that we do it now virtually, thanks to uh, experience in COVID. So you, before it was, um, the workshops were either at Rutgers or during the APT meetings. 
And uh, APT meetings, workshops mm -hmm. are expensive and at Rutgers we're also charged. Uh, people, now everything is free. Uh, it's online and we have online mm -hmm. materials uh, where the videos of experiments substitute for real stuff. So you can really experience it in the workshop. We do eight mm -hmm. hours and, uh, you know, people participate as students and then reflect and participate as students and reflect. They read uh, the materials that we ask them to read and they uh, need to get a textbook uh, and the supporting materials on mastering physics from Pearson. Then they join the um, mm -hmm. Facebook group where the posts are every day. And uh, out of 1,200 people, I can see that five to 600 people view every post. It's a, it's a, it's a huge number. And, um, you know, people respond. And sometimes we have discussions with 30, 40 uh, posts. And every month, once a month, we have a meeting. It's on a Saturday for an hour or two hours every month and every meeting is based on the questions that originated in the previous meeting. So people who come to these meetings mm -hmm. have an opportunity to ask a question and will be answered. And of course, any question answered on Facebook, uh, asked on uh, Facebook is answered immediately by me or by somebody else who does IELTS. We also have an IELTS website. It's IELTSphysics.net. And on that website, there's instructions for other websites for uh, modules, for um, uh, IELTS offshoot for middle school and high school. It's called PUM, Physics Union mm -hmm. Mathematics. Mm -hmm. uh, we have there the link to the website for IELTS-based labs with the self-assessment rubrics that I told you about. And we have the website mm -hmm. that originally won that 2010 award, but now we're redoing the videos with additional videos uh, with questions. This, these are all free things. And we also have a YouTube aisle channel that you can subscribe to. <laughs> but on the channel, just videos. On the website, on the video website, uh, the link to which is on aislephysics.net, they're supporting questions. So you know what questions to ask. But these are still individual things. In order to see the flow, in order to understand the depth of physics that we go into, connection with representations, mathematics, and language, because I didn't talk about any of that, but I'll use mm -hmm. this very specific language, very specific notation. It, the um, foundation, conceptual foundation is the idea of a system. You know, it has the system approach to the analysis of everything. We use... Uh, momentum and energy bar charts that are not only in mechanics, but they go through mechanics, uh, thermal physics, electrostatics, atomic physics, photoelectric effect, magnetism, uh, nuclear physics. So we have tools that allow students to see the coherence of physics. We have very specific approach to mathematics. And the language itself that we use is also research-based, as well as the approach to mathematics. Mm -hmm. Why? because I was so fortunate to have amazing PhD students who opened different worlds for me. So David Brooks, who is now a professor at Chico, he did a dissertation on the use of language in physics, and that's what affected our approach to language. Suzanne white who is a professor mm -hmm. now at uh, the University of Washington, uh, she studied the use of mathematics, and that's how our use of mathematics is different from everybody else. 
So it's this work with many people and knowing the field of physics education research, because every idea that was studied in PR is reflected in our work, allowed us to write this textbook that you have the first edition, but now is in the second edition. Mm -hmm. And this textbook mm -hmm. is yeah. not free, but it comes with the active learning guide and the instructor guide and the set of videos and exam questions that are all free on uh, Mastering Physics platform by Pearson. Every teacher is entitled to be on that platform for free. So if you don't want to purchase a book, and as a teacher, you're entitled to a free copy, uh, but if you don't want to adopt it for your class, you still have access to all these materials that we give away for mm. free. And there are also materials for online teaching. So if you continue teaching online, you can take our online active learning guide and uh, just start doing it. But the textbook is absolutely necessary for you as a teacher to understand mm. why we're doing things the way we're doing them. It is explained yeah. in the instructor okay. guide, but if you don't read the textbook as if you never studied physics, you would not understand what we do. And that is, if you ask me about a pain that I feel, that's my biggest pain, is that the teachers, even those who adopt the book, they don't read it this way because they see acceleration. Oh, I know what acceleration is. Why do I need to? I'll skip it. Mm. I'll skip that. I'll mm -hmm. try to find things which I either like or don't know. But that's not uh, what will help. What will help if mm -hmm. you say, okay, I've never studied physics. Let me read it as a student. And then you will benefit from it. <laughs> and that's why it's also extremely helpful for the students because it's, it's a completely different book. It's written as a dialogue, as a conversation, instead of preaching. And so that's yeah. why if you want the full thing, then you take the workshop, you read the papers, you join the Facebook uh, group, you come to the meetings. I have people who have not missed a single meeting in a year. And they are, let's say, in Europe. So for them, the meetings can be at midnight and they still come. So you come to meetings, you ask questions, you participate in the, uh, you know, in the discussions, the post, you get the book, you study it, and you try to understand how the activities in the active learning guide are related to the text in the book. And they're very closely merged. So when you do an activity and then you read the book, say, oh, this is exactly what I just did. So, yeah, it's not easy because first we have a lot of stuff. And second... Using this approach requires some kind of a mind shift. And the shift is that it's not about what you know or what you do. It's yeah. about what students know and what they do. How do you build on their ideas and how do you teach them to test their ideas experimentally, not waiting for authority? And also, how do you teach them to believe that they can? Because this approach only works if the teacher believes that everyone can learn physics. And if the students start believing eventually, after they resubmit their stuff and get an improvement, and they get 100%, although it was a third attempt, and they still get an A. They don't get it reduced because it was a third attempt. They say, oh, that's what you meant, that I can learn. 
I can learn. Yes, I can. So that's what we want. And and now that I, I think times are slowly, finally beginning to move away from the the look to your left, look to your right, you know, at least one of you will be gone sort of days as we try to move away from that to into a more encouraging curriculum. It, it sounds like this this really gives space for that, even with the intentional language of, of moving away from the, the misconceptions framework to, I mean, it sounds like the underpinnings are more of a resources framework that the students yes. are really coming in with these resources, but you don't even really talk about that with them. You just, you just assume that's what they're coming in with right. resources and you're going to work with what they come in with because they've never been in a completely dark room because they've never been in a vacuum. Right. So, so how could they think about those things if they haven't been in those situations? Right. So right. I, I really, I really like and appreciate that intentionality that's, that's there. Right. Um, and there's exactly these two intentionalities that we articulated in the paper that you read is learn to approach the world like a scientist, but also learn to develop the mindset of a scientist in terms of failure. You're not failing when you need to redo stuff. That's how science works that's how physics works right mm -hmm. and you're not expected to be right on the first try you expect it to learn yeah i'm curious what the student response has been to to this style what what have what have they thought of it and and i'm sure i'm sure part of it's going to be it's it's tough at first because they're not used to it but but I, I know I've seen from modeling instruction that you give them you give them the year and they're like, wow, this was the best way ever. So I'm, is, is that is that kind of the feeling you get from you see yes. from students? Yes, absolutely. And I would tell you that my experience is I've actually worked with teachers in elementary school who were doing aisle. These kids were the most receptive. Ninth graders in physics mm -hmm. first, just go with it because they mm. they don't mm. know anything different. They just come to high school and that's how physics right. is. And so we do it. Uh, seniors in high school are much more difficult because they already had other courses. They know that they need to give the right answer. It's like, what are you mm -hmm. talking about? You know, we can try again, right? The same at the university. If you get freshmen, it's great because hmm. they come to the okay. university. They don't know what science courses at the university are like. Oh, that's what they're like. Great. You know, I will design my own experiments in labs. We're going to work in groups. This is amazing. But we have materials developed for algebra-based courses and often they're service courses and people take them as a requirement in their last year to fulfill yeah, the requirement. Usually much this later. is much more difficult. It's like, what do you mean I need to design mm -hmm. my own experiment? You need to guide mm -hmm. me. You know, in student evaluations, I will not tell you the good ones because they're all the same. I learned a lot. I learned to believe in myself. You know, I can see physics everywhere. I was running after a bus today and I felt my internal energy going into kinetic energy. You know, this, this is good <laughs> stuff. The bad stuff sounds like that. I don't blame my TA. He's a good guy, but he had to work with the lab that somebody else wrote. And that somebody else wanted us to design our own experiments and think on our own. This is not what the course should be about. The course should be about us following good instructions. So that's what we get. Mm -hmm. And um, 
by the end of the course, and we did surveys, about 80% of the students embrace it. And uh, one of the good quotes was, you know, at the beginning, I would come to a lab and I'd see, oh, I need to design a new experiment. I don't know how to design a new experiment. I'm going to fail. Now I come to a lab and I see, oh, it's a new experiment I have to design. I don't know how to design it now, but I know that at the end of the lab, I will know how to do it. So that confidence. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, in that paper that you read, you you see the interviews, right? And the uh, results of the interviews that we conducted with many students. And when we asked them to talk about the course, it, these were uh, students, A students and B and C students, all of them 100% talking freely about the course mentioned uh, its usefulness for either other courses, their life or their future mm -hmm. job, unprompted. Every single student, 100%. Mm. Then, you know, 80% mentioned importance of experiments or group work or this or that. But 100% said how useful it was for other courses, future life, or future job. And uh, my PhD student recently, a high school physics teacher, actually, Danielle Bouget, had a study, a longitudinal study of her students some of them graduated 10 years ago, and they still remember not only what they learned, but how to do it because she invited them and they approached the new problem in this aisle way. But they said how useful it mm -hmm. is, it was for their university studies and how useful it is in their jobs, although almost none of them is a phys was a physicist in that study. That sounds like good support. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's hard. It's hard. And this is my biggest pain, that it's not spreading the way I would like it to spread. We have the resources. We offer help. Like if you tell me today, Eugenia, I want to do it in my classroom, I will work with you individually. That's one thing I didn't say yet, that if you personally want to uh, do aisle in your classroom, you send me an email and I will meet with you and I will guide you through exactly what you need to do because your setup in your university is different from another mm -hmm. university. High school uh, is different. They're all the same. It's lesson after lesson after lesson. But in the university, you have a large enrollment or a small enrollment. How long is your lab? How long are your lectures? We call them large room meetings because we don't lecture or problem solving sessions. I will help you tailor our materials to your environment. And that's what I do with many universities who adopted ILE. So it's not just a, a studio environment that you have to do it in. I mean, that's always, I think, ideal, yes. but obviously very challenging in many places, especially a large enrollment. So, so, so you've seen, you've seen this work in, in large enrollment classes where you've got, you know, your three hours of, of lab, I mean, lecture, yes. class meeting, uh, and then the three-hour separate mm -hmm. lab or two-hour separate yeah, lab. Yeah, that's what okay. we do at Rutgers. They're all large enrollment courses. Mm -hmm. We just recently did, um, uh, not recently, the last three years, have been working with Rutgers Newark, which is a different institution. It's called Rutgers, but it's a separate entity, separate physics department. I've been working with the University of Syracuse, also large enrollment courses. And uh, I worked with each of them individually so we can tailor our materials 
uh, to the environment. So I, I would do it for you. I would do it for anyone. I would do it for everyone. Why? Because I believe that the IELTS approach is the best approach for the students to learn physics. If I can help just one student, seriously, one student do better and learn physics, not physics, but to think like a physicist, I would do it. Why? Because we need people to think. And, and especially for, for new teachers, I, I, it can be intimidating, daunting going into the teaching profession with, I mean, and just saying, well, here's a textbook, you know, what am I supposed to do to have a, a framework? You know, I felt very lucky that uh, when I joined uh, University of New England, I, I, they were, they were full on doing the modeling instruction. And so they sent me mm -hmm. to a, a workshop so that I could, I could be rolled right into that to, to have a framework that I could then start my teaching career with was so was so helpful for me, and it it gave it gave me sort of a, a root in the a root in the ground of where to spread out from and think about the other pieces I've been interested in. So, uh, you know, I certainly encourage folks who are listening, especially if you're a, a newer teacher or just beginning to get into teaching, to to think about, you know, going into something like this, going, uh, you know, trying to adopt the the IELTS curriculum because it's just it, it's. If it's a framework that you can believe in yourself, then it really gives you a you know something to ground yourself in, and and you have a lot of materials, and you don't have to invent it all yourself. I mean, I mean that that's a great part right there. But you know, just to be grounded in in some kind of framework is, I think, such an important piece. That's right, and I think that this you you got the most important part that it's not a set of activities. It is a framework. It's the way of thinking. Before, we would call it a philosophy, a philosophical mm -hmm. approach to thinking about learning physics. So I'm going to, so you, you've given lots of great places for people to find information. You've given your contact information. I'll make sure all of that ends up in my show mm -hmm. notes. So folks can just go to, uh, can just scroll down on the podcast app and see the show notes or, or go right to um probably physicsalive.com slash aisle is is what is, is what my webpage will be and that'll send you off to all those great resources um uh, and then you know. yes i i just want to say that the facebook is called exploring and applying physics because mm -hmm. our second edition is called uh college physics explore and apply and initially i created it just to support people who use the textbook but during the pandemic i opened it up for anyone who is interested in doing our stuff. And so when they join, ask to join the group, there's a question. They need to answer the question. If they don't answer the question, I'll send them a personal message saying, would you please answer the question? And if they don't the question, answer the question after I think, that. I, that was me. I will not admit <laughs> them. So answering the question is crucial. Is is there any final final hope for the future? Of, of IELTS or physics education that that you would like you would like to share before we before we depart. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I see the whole countries being excited about it. Like Italy, now I'm working with Italian teachers all the time. Indonesia, uh, Mexico, lots of countries are excited, and um, we can change the world. That that's is my ultimate goal. So yes, 
there's lots of hope and I'm trying to do my best to spread uh, aisle all over the world. So if you help me, that's great. Thank you for inviting me for this podcast because I think that it might help achieve my goal. So the more people who want to learn about it, uh, the better. I will work with them individually. I will work with them as a group. I'll do anything to help. Just if you want to learn about Isle, I'm here. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, for, for sharing your your knowledge and your passion behind uh, the the Isle environment and uh, just just to hear you talking about it and the the energy that you have for it, but you know the the belief in something amazing that has been developed here and and will hopefully continue flowering and and that many educators will find it. I'm just really excited, uh, really excited about it now personally. No, uh, now that I've that's talked great. to you, so, so thank you. So You're thank the you so one, much for the conversation right? that I want to work with. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Brad. Thank you All for right. inviting me. It's a huge honor. Really, a huge honor. I'm very grateful. Thank you. There's so much that I took away from that conversation. I think one of the pieces that really has stuck with me philosophy-wise is this, this piece about not having a misconceptions focus. And this is something that I've, I've been immersed in some of the literature about either misconceptions or preconceptions or a resources framework and the differences between those. But I think this conversation really helped it sink into me how a misconceptions or even preconceptions approach really is is not the greatest way to set students up. It is it's a deficit model of of considering learning rather than a, a model that that says, "Hey, what you've seen in the world around you, that's what you've seen and that's totally legitimate. Now, we want to define this more precisely in physics. We want to test these assumptions that you have." and see if we can dig into some greater meaning, into some greater understanding of the phenom phenomena around us. So that was one piece that, that really stuck out to me. And, and just seeing the progression of, of a topic, you know, the, the progression of thinking about light and how you can build up a model of, of light and how that model can then be useful for testing predictions and seeing how those work out. That was to, like to be able to walk through that example was, was really val valuable and seeing what the, the aisle framework is all about. You can find links to articles and websites about aisle in the show notes, or you can go to the web link for this episode, physicsalive.com slash aisle, I-S-L-E. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive or leave a comment on the episode page, physicsalive.com slash aisle. If you enjoy the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and a written review. Word of mouth is even better. Share this podcast with a friend. The more teaching resources we have to choose from, the better. If your resources permit, I invite you to be a patron of the show. Membership levels start at $2 per month, and your support helps to pay for upkeep, such as web host fees, podcast host fees, and equipment upgrades. With enough support, I'll be able to get editing help, which would allow me to produce more episodes each month. Honestly, editing is definitely the bottleneck. 
to getting episodes out. So if you can help support the show, then please go to patreon.com slash physics alive. Thanks again for listening in. Isle is a remarkable approach to teaching, and I believe we all have something to take away from this episode, whether it's an interest in adopting the entire curriculum or a new perspective about student learning. Please join me again for the next episode. Until next time, may you ever strive to bring physics alive and be well.